0: Here's a fax from Cooter in Orlando who sends me a copy of a story that appeared in the Los Angeles Times, he says, a prestigious, uh, prestigious newspaper, not the oft-maligned weekly World News. Quoting the story, In retrospect, lighting the match was my big mistake, but I was only trying to retrieve the gerbil, Eric Tomaszewski told the news doctors in the severe burns unit of Salt Lake City Hospital. Tomaszewski and his homosexual partner, Andrew Kinky Farnham, had been admitted for emergency treatment after a felching session had gone seriously wrong. I pushed a, pushed a cardboard tube up his rectum and slipped Raggett, our gerbil, in, he explained. As usual, Kinky shouted out, Armageddon! My, my cue that <laughs> he'd had enough. I tried to retrieve Raggett, but he wouldn't come out again, so I peered into the tube... <laughs> ...struck a match, thinking the light might attract him. (laughs) At a hushed press conference, a hospital spokesman described what happened next. The match ignited a pocket of intestinal gas and flame shot out the tube... (laughs) ...igniting Mr. Tomachevsky's hair and severely burning his face... It also set fire to the gerbil's fur and whiskers, which in turn ignited a larger pocket of gas, further up the intestine, propelling the rodent out like a cannonball. Armageddon! 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 <laughs> <laughs> Thomas- Tomaszewski suffered second-degree burns and a broken nose from the impact of the gerbil. (laughs) While Furnum suffered first and second-degree burns to his anus and lower intestinal tract. (laughs) (laughs) Armageddon! into the tube and struck a match thinking the light might make the gerbil come out <laughs> so that's what felching is all about i'm again <laughs> who says that i didn't robert e raven on the john bourne billy show first and foremost i want to say thank you to my lord and savior jesus christ Hallelujah! i said those who bring evil against me will not prosper i said those who stand in the dark can never come into the light all praise be to the one and only true god jesus christ
1: previous episode of this podcast, I sat down with Aaron Daggs to talk about the history of banking in America and how that impacts your life today. And it was related to what we should think about Bitcoin and other alternative currencies. I want to come back to that topic. You can't understand the history of America without understanding the history of banking. And you can't understand the history of banking without knowing the name Rothschild. Um, maybe that's a name you've heard of, you know, watching videos on YouTube about the Illuminati. Rothschild, very uh, famous name. I've actually done a job before, a junk removal job for Rothschild. You need to know that name. And in chapter three of The Killing of Uncle Sam by Rodney Howard Brown and Paul Williams, uh, they give a nice little overview of uh, the history of banking as it relates to the Rothschild family. And so I'm going to, probably over a series of different clips, uh, read to you from chapter three to catch you up on the Rothschild family. So meeting Rothschild, and it begins with a quote by Nathan Mayer Rothschild from 1815. I care not what puppet is placed on the throne of England to rule the empire. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. Read that again. I care not what puppet is placed on the throne of England to rule the empire. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. Now there's a principle set there that can be applied to America as well. But that's Nathan Mayer Rothschild, 1815. You know, imagine a guy with a lot of hair, big beard, you know, long black overcoat and a cane and a top hat, that kind of vibe. Okay. Uh, Cecil Rhodes traveled back and forth from South Africa to England until the time of his graduation from Oxford in 1881. By then, he had acquired claims to over 40 diamond mines in Kimberley. Uh, Kimberley was a site, I think in South Africa. And it was like the, the largest hole dug on the face of the earth by just a bunch of dudes with shovels and picks. Digging, hole, digging a big hole looking for diamonds. Imagine a huge tent city, a bunch of bars, some of the richer guys with hardwood floors and, and iron uh framing and and roofs right 100 degrees in the shade you know you're going to be rich not if you're in the whole digging but if you're selling ice cream that kind of vibe throughout the next seven years he continued to purchase mine after mine unfortunately and no surprise Rhodes ignored safety rules and disaster struck in march 1888 when one of his most profitable mines collapsed and 178 african laborers and 24 white miners perished after the disaster, and that's uh, that's footnoted, after the disaster, he returned to London to seek funding from Nathan Mayer Rothschild & Sons, so N.M. Rothschild & Sons, for the takeover of the remaining mines in Kimberley, including Compagnie Francois, a company that owned a multitude of diamond-rich claims. By the time of Rhodes' arrival, N.M. Rothschild & Sons, under Lord Nathan Rothschild, possessed complete control of the Bank of England, which regulated the country's currency. The Rothschilds performed this task simply by printing or burning the paper money. They increased the money supply to promote prosperity and decreased the, the supply to prevent inflation. These manipulations were based on the distinction between money and goods. Goods were the real wealth that a person possessed, while money, remained only a person's claim on the wealth that was being retained by someone or something else, i.e. a bank. Goods were tangible assets, while money represented a statement of the debt that was owed to the holder. The use of money rather than goods as payment for a transaction dated back to the creation of the Bank of England by William Patterson, a retired pirate, in 1694. Patterson alleviated his customers of the burden of transferring heavy bags or chests of gold, for business transactions by producing paper certificates which entitled the bearers to exchange them for gold upon demand. Thanks to the convenience of paper, only a small fraction of certificate holders ever sought redemption in the precious metal. Patterson quickly realized that they only needed to hold enough gold in hand to cover the fraction of certificates presented as payment. The rest of the gold could be used to mount a myriad of public and private ventures, including the building of ships and the waging of war. The excess volume, which rose to 90% of the paper claims against reserves, became known as bank notes. An economic miracle had been performed. The issuance of paper claims greater than the gold at hand meant that the Bank of England was creating most of its money out of nothing. So again, the issuance of paper claims greater than the gold at hand meant that the Bank of England was creating most of its money out of nothing, a practice that eventually became adopted by the other central banks in existence at the time of Rhodes' meeting with Rothschild vis-a-vis... I don't actually know what that symbol means. V-I-Z, period. So I just... I just assume vis-a-vis, but then I don't even know what vis-a-vis means. Anyway, I'm not that literate. Uh, So V-I-Z, period, comma... Swedish Swedish Riksbank, Bank of Spain, Bank de France, Bank of Finland, the Bank, Norges Bank, Österreichische National Bank, Denmark's National Bank, Banco de Portugal, National Bank of Belgium, Bank of Indonesia, German Reichsbank. Bulgarian National Bank, National Bank of Romania, Bank of Japan, and the National Bank of Serbia. Wealth by Stealth. The Rothschild family took control of the Bank of England in 1815 by an act of stealth. Now get this, right? You've heard of Napoleon, Wellington, Battle of Waterloo, all of that And that's all central to the control of the Rothschild family over the banking system of England and then more. At the Battle of Waterloo, Nathan or Natty Rothschild, Lord Nathan Rothschild's grandfather, funded the British forces under the Duke of Wellington, while Jacob Rothschild funded the French army under Napoleon. So the same family is bankrolling both sides of the battle. Can't lose. Receiving preliminary news from his couriers that Wellington had won the battle, Natty Rothschild appeared at the London Stock Exchange in a feigned mood of depression and commenced selling his British war bonds. This started a chain reaction. Traders en masse unloaded their bonds at rock-bottom prices to buyers, who were shills from the Rothschild family. When news arrived that Wellington had actually won the battle, Natty had received a 20-to-1 return on his investment. This forced England, now the financial hub of the world, to set up a new Bank of England with the Rothschilds as principal shareholders. Rothschild in America The involvement of the Rothschilds in American history dates back to 1791, when the banking family became the principal shareholders of the First National Bank of the United States, thanks to the efforts of Alexander Hamilton, their agent in the Washington cabinet. America's first central bank produced the country's currency and became the sole provider of loans, all interest bearing, to the federal government. By 1796, the American government had borrowed $8.2 million from the central bank and prices on consumer goods rose by 72%. So if you have a debt society, expect prices to rise. Mayor Amschel Rothschild, the head of the banking family, demanded partial payment of the loan, which the government under Thomas Jefferson could provide by selling all of its shares in First National. In this way, the bank became 100% privately owned, with 75% of its shares held by the Rothschilds and other foreign bankers. The War of 1812 In 1811, when the charter for First National was set to expire, Natty Rothschild, the new head of the family issued this order. Either the application for renewal of the charter is granted or the United States will find itself in a disastrous war. So you you renew our charter or we'll make sure that you're facing a war that ruins you financially. That's blackmail, baby. But the members of Congress at that time apparently had some spine and they refused to buckle under this threat And voted against renewal. We will not negotiate with terrorists. The War of 1812 erupted because of Britain's attempts to restrict trade between the United States and France and the impression by impression, I mean the seizing and forcing into service of U.S. seamen into the Royal Navy. The Rothschilds' role in creating such policies remains unknown. But the banking family nevertheless provided the British government, check this out, with loans without interest for the war effort. So there was a group that the Rothschilds wanted to destroy. And so they gave loans with 0% interest to the enemies of that group. Now, very interestingly, the banks in America today are giving 0% interest loans to BlackRock, right? To buy up real estate. Now, what group are they trying to destroy with that loan policy. Because they're not going to give loans without any benefit to themselves. They're not they're not altruists, they're bankers. So the the role in the specific policies that precipitated the War of 1812, the role of the Rothschild family is still unknown. But we do know that they were giving loans at 0% interest to the British government. At the end of the struggle, America may have won its second war of independence but the country was left with a huge war debt of $105 million relative to a population of only 8 million people. Faced with this financial burden, Congress approved the creation of the Second Bank of the United States in 1816. To no one's surprise, the Rothschilds emerged as the major shareholders. Okay, I'm going to stop there because he's going to transition to talking about Andrew, Andy, Jackson, And so I'll make that a different clip for a different episode talking about the balls on that man, the balls of Andrew Jackson going head-to-head against the most powerful family on the planet. Until then, this has been a lesson in banking. So if you've been paying attention to the Conservative news cycle, you'll have been seeing quite a number of stories coming out of public schools that it broadly can be summed up as what the hell stories. You see the story and you think, what the hell? And it's being, you know, these stories are being shared on conservative platforms. For you to be shocked and outraged, and, you know, probably both for you to support those platforms, um, and then, you know, probably get behind politicians who are promising to reform education. My guess is that's what's being targeted with the sharing of these stories, you know, so today to give you a flavor of what I'm talking about today, I saw a story, uh, I used to live in Kentucky. It's a great state. And there's a mayor of some town in Kentucky who's also the principal of the local high school. And he he had uh, a drag show. So, you know, boys dressing up as girls. And at this show where it was like an assembly, right? So you imagine a principal and, you know, different teachers and faculty sitting in chairs on the basketball court. And the stands, the bleachers are full of students. And then one at a time, the students, the, the, me, the male students participating in the show come out and they're all wearing lingerie and there's photos of, you know, these lingerie clad high school boys giving lap dances to the principal and his administration, you know, twerking on them, things like that. You know, and obviously you read that and you think, <laughs> what the hell? Uh, we've got stories from Loudoun County. Uh, You know, a Christian teacher fired for refusing to teach critical race theory. Um, Two girls raped at the same school, I think a week apart, by a transgender student. And uh, the school knew about the first rape and still had the transgender, so the, the young man pretending to be a woman, still had that student at school where he was able to rape the second girl. And then we're being uncooperative with the dad for police investigation and relatively treating the cases dismissively to the point where the dad ends up protesting a school board meeting and they call the cops on him and the police arrest him for trespassing. Um, what are some of the crazy things? I don't know. You you get it. This is the... the Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Parents who are going to school board meetings and protesting critical race theory and masking, you know, forced masking of the students are being identified officially as domestic terrorists. So, I mean, all, just crazy stuff. And my response to these stories and maybe your response, but my response is just laugh and if you zoom in, every instance is a tragedy, right? Zoom in on any instance of abuse or, or wickedness, unrighteousness, and each one is a tragedy, right? There's a, there's a villain and there's a victim and you can, in the abstract, feel sorry for the victims uh, and, and feel sadness for the damage done by these schools. But here's the thing. Uh, I went to public school in rural Virginia and I was in high school from I graduated high school in 2009 so the, the four years leading up to that and we were taught uh, a radical Marxist view of American history in rural Virginia you know, the, the part of Virginia full of just good old folks, uh, with poultry farms and cow farms and growing corn and, uh, and having apple orchards, um, a very, very rural down to earth place being taught Marxist theory, a Marxist lens of American history. You know, the, the reality, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not even on the front end of insanity in the schools. Uh, But, you know, uh, again, really conservative area. And uh, you know how like a school will have an assigned police officer, right? Uh, I think they were called resource officers. So we had a resource officer and I can't remember her name, but she was just an obvious dyke. And our assistant principal was an obvious dyke. So just flaming gaze, as authority figures at the school. Um, homosexuality. Not as blatantly supported. Then as it is now. But definitely. Uh, not a persecuted class. Now we made sure to make fun of them. But the school wasn't in any way persecuting. It was, it was. If anything supportive. Of gays even back then. Uh, it was supportive of illegal immigration back then. Uh, we we are far into sexual anarchy, being the established point, one of the established points of you know uh, of public schools. We had sex ed, and and that is designed to sexualize the student body. So, you know, when you see these things happening, something even as outlandish. As a principal having high school boys dress up as, as girls. Uh, I mean, we had powder puff football. Girls dressing up like football players playing football and boys being cheerleaders on the sideline. We did all that. We had a guy who wore a dress to school. And uh, it's just, what do you expect? I mean, what do you expect? Um, should that rapist be punished according to biblical law? Yes. And it's a tragedy what happened to those girls. But that dad had long before victimized his daughter by putting her into that school. Long before he victimized his daughter. Long before he put her in a situation where she was set up to be sexual prey. Predated on, not just by her fellow students, but by the faculty and staff of the school. Long before. He was complicit in that by participating in the American public educational system don't don't be shocked when uh sexual libertarianism leads to some p- principle being consistent don't be shocked don't be upset there's nothing to be upset about it, this is what it is this is what it is if you don't like that, don't send your kid to those schools. If you don't want your kids to be a victim of that system, don't put your kid in that system. Just leave. Some 10,000 kids, I heard this, this is anecdotal, I haven't verified this, but I have heard uh, from, uh, from some lady I was doing some uh, construction work for, that some 10,000 kids have been removed from the Loudoun County school system. And it's about time. You know, all, all this stuff, they're not of us. These, these villains are not of us. They, they're, not, they're not ours. So let them devour themselves. Let them do what they see fit. And they will get what's coming to them. But just don't be among them. Don't put your kid under their care. We do our thing, and they do their thing, and their thing sucks. Okay. Their thing's evil. Okay. Fauci's having flies eat the heads off of beagles, and he's taking the scalps off of aborted... Well, of, he's taking the scalps off of living babies and putting them onto rats and growing hair, you know, for whatever. And and Bill Gates is buying up all the farmland in, in America and and trying to block out the sun they're doing what they will. And it will be all to naught when it's all said and done. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. Time is fleeting. We don't have time to get outraged at every outrageous thing they do. It's it's a hell of a laugh. And so I like being... I like being abreast of what's happening because it's a good laugh. But if you think I'm going to be outraged over every single thing that they do, that's this wicked, you got another thing coming. And you should not be a joke by choosing to be victimized by it. Don't choose to be victimized by it. If you do, if you choose to be victimized by it, that's your fault. And if you're, if you're outraged because it personally affects you, that's your fault. Maybe when they put you in a gulag, uh, you know, and you're not voluntarily going there, I I could get how it affects you personally. But if you're voluntarily participating and get hurt, what did you think was going to happen? This stuff's crazy and it's hilarious.